Well, let me uh, invite you to find Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We'll be looking there uh, in just a moment. But I want to just take a moment and pick up maybe just on what Pat was just uh, uh, saying about the One Cry. You know, we, we took some several times, the weeks leading up to the One Cry conference, took a few moments to pray in the midst of our uh, time together for worship. And uh, I wanted us to take just a, a little bit of time here uh, the Sunday after. And I want us to take just a moment and pray and say thank you, first of all, God, thank you for uh, what you did during those days. But also, God, help us not to miss, miss the follow-through, miss what it is that you have stirred in us, the, that which you refocused us on or refined or renewed in us. And Father, help us to continue uh, to build on that along the way. And so I'm just going to ask you, if you would, uh, just join with me again this morning. And let's just take a moment and, and pray together and just, just out of the One Cry conference and, and what it is that God would have us to focus on out of that time together. Would you join with me as we pray together, please. Father, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love, your truth. Father, we thank you for how you moved uh, among us during this One Cry conference. And Father, the, the things that you challenged us with, the things that you exposed, the encouragement, the strength, the refocus, the refining. Father, thank you for your presence in those days. And Father, we, we come praying knowing that we live in a world where there is an enemy at work. And Father, that enemy delights to distract and distort. Father, he, he delights in, in taking whenever your word is implanted and in snatching it out of our lives very quickly or prompting us to not go deep, but settle for shallow. Father, he masters the art of throwing so many things at us that, that the, the message of your truth and your word kind of gets choked out in the busyness of our lives. Father, I just, I just want to pray against that right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just find in us not only hearts that were receptive during these days, but hearts that continue to be open and receptive. Father, empower us to fan into flame those things which you have kindled anew and afresh in us. Father, help us to, to move forward, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the one who is faithful. Father, just how we come and praise you and thank you that, that you are the one who not only begins a good work in us, but carries it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, as your servants, as your children, as those loved by you, Father, we just come and say, carry it through. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to settle for less than your best. Father, we want to walk in the fullness of all that you have called us to do, all that you have created us and saved us to be. Father, this is our prayer as we walk out of this conference, conference into our, our lives. May we walk in a renewed way in Christ Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me in that. And just, we do pray that that will just continue to be 
part of our, our heartbeat. We are focusing, as Pat said, on a, on a series of messages, short series kind of leading up to Palm Sunday and Easter. We're just going to look at some of the characters of the crucifixion, some of those kind of main characters, if you will, that, that were part of that crucifixion story as it's recorded in the gospel. And uh, for uh, perhaps some of these characters, they don't need a whole lot of introduction. You know, in our, in our world, there's a lot of folks that you don't need to know their first and last name, right? They, they are so famous or perhaps so infamous that they're, they're one-word people, right? They're just one word. So if you were like around uh, a long time ago, like in the 1960s, we could have said something like Twiggy, and instantly you would have noted this is a skinny model, right? You would have known that, and some of you have to go Google Twiggy now to figure out who in the world that person was. But let's, let's update that a little bit. Maybe as you came through the years, yeah, maybe staying kind of in that same era, uh, all you would need to heard was Elvis, right? El, I mean, just one word, that's it. You knew exactly who we were talking about. And maybe, maybe you would have gone to, to share, right? Or Prince, Bono, more recently, Beyonce. Or Adele, right? That's, you don't need anything else. One word's sufficient. In the world of sports, there's, there's always been those folks. Just have to say tiger. Hey, everybody knows who you're talking about. This, this is a golfer, right? Everybody knows. If you're an NBA fan, through the years, you've had folks that you could readily identify Shaq. <laughs> That's it. You just have to say Shaq or Kobe or LeBron, right? Just one word quickly identifies them. When you come to the Bible, sometimes that's not easy. When you say Mary, you may have to distinguish exactly which Mary are we talking about. There's several Marys there. But for the most part, if you say Peter or Paul or certainly Jesus, we kind of know, okay, one word sufficient. We know who we're talking about. The same is true of the guy we're going to focus on this morning. One word, one name, Judas. Now, interestingly enough, there are several Judases in the Bible. But when I say Judas, most of us immediately go to one figure, one person, the person associated with Jesus. And although perhaps facets of his life are very familiar to us, what I want us to do this morning is not only reacquaint ourselves with some of the facts, but get acquainted with some of the lessons that we can draw from his tragic life. Because when it comes down to the word Judas, most of us think of perhaps one of the more infamous and tragic figure, figures in all of Scripture, Judas Iscariot. And want to just take a few moments and just review a little bit of his life. And this will be kind of a quick uh, airplane uh, view of, of his life. He was the son of Simon Iscariot, and, and we've got some scripture references there. We won't take time to look at all of these. We will look at a few here in Matthew 26 in just a moment. Uh, but that, that was the, the name Iscariot comes from his father. He was one of the 12 disciples, one of that original group of 12, kind of that inner group with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus, saw, experienced so much along the way. Not only was he one of the 12, but actually the scripture tells us he was the treasurer. 
he kind of had charge of the money bag, interestingly enough. And you see a few times in Scripture where it's mentioned he is the keeper of the coin. He's the one who had the money bag. Uh, But also John's gospel in, in chapter 12 tells us that he wasn't the most honest of treasurers, that he was skimming a little bit off the top. He was a thief. Perhaps one of the more better-known facts of Judas's life is that he made a bargain. He agreed to turn over or betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's part of the narrative there in Matthew's gospel, the 26th chapter. Let me just read verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly, in Exodus 31, in some of the Old Testament laws, we find that if, uh, if you had an animal, that an ox, for instance, that gored a, a, another person's slave, and you would have to pay 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave. It was the price that Judas agreed on to betray Jesus. Even after making this bargain... Judas was there in the upper room as part of that Last Supper, sharing those intimate moments, even to the point of Jesus handing him a piece of bread. He would turn over Jesus with a kiss. Let's go ahead and and just read that because there's some, some things that I want you not to miss in that. Verse 47. This is after the upper room. Jesus has been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Now, sometimes when we read that, we, we, we get the picture of G- Judas maybe quick peck on the cheek, you know, because we don't, yeah, particularly guys, we don't do like a lot of kissing of other guys in our culture, right? So it's like, let's get this over as quick as possible, right? Smooch and run is, would be the, the closest thing that most of us would, would perhaps do. But, but actually, the word picture there is not of a quick peck and run. But th- th- this was an embrace. This was a, this was a kiss of, uh, that would have been indicative of, of warm feelings, of friendship, of love. He probably, there wasn't just a peck, but he probably would have kissed at least both sides uh, of the cheek. There was this, this sign of affection that was the sign of his ultimate betrayal. Judas came to a point where he was remorseful. 
He was remorseful uh, over what was unfolding as he saw the arrest and began to maybe understand the implications of his actions. And, and in his remorse, he returned the, the money to the chief priest and the elders. And you can read more about that in, in chapter 27. Uh, but they, they understood this to be blood money. And so they, they weren't going to put it back into the, the treasury of the temple. And so they ended up buying a field, uh, a field for, for burial, a field that would be known as the field of blood. And then Judas's life continued to, to spiral downward, and the scriptures record for us that ultimately he took his own life. And you find that in Matthew and, and repeated again and highlighted in Acts. But none of this came as a surprise to the sovereign God. In fact, is all of this took place in fulfillment of scripture, and we've given you some of the references there in case you want to chase those down a little bit along the way. But you may be familiar with many of those facts about Judas. For some of you, you've heard those, uh, you think, all your life. For some of you, maybe there was a new fact or two in there. But out of that, what I want us to, to spend our time doing is thinking about not just the facts of his life, although they're important as the backdrop, but the lessons we can learn from his life, the lessons we can learn from a very tragic life. And while the lessons may be many, for the sake of our time this morning, I just want to focus on three. Three, I think, very sobering but important lessons from Judas's tragic life. And the first lesson, and perhaps the hugest lesson, is simply this, is that you can fake a relationship with Christ. You can fake a relationship with Christ. Think about, think, think about Judas. Think about all that he experienced. He had been with Jesus, not just once in a while, not just occasionally, but continually, week after week, month after month, for several years. He had been with Jesus. He had been in the presence of Jesus. He heard the teaching of Jesus. It was not about a lack of exposure to truth. He knew the truth. He had heard it again and again and again. Again, he was well acquainted with the teachings of Jesus. Not only the teachings of Jesus, but Judas had a front row seat to a lot of the miracles of Jesus. I mean, think about that. He, he was, was so close and so involved that, that he saw some of this, this incredible activity of God, this miraculous movements of God. He had a front row seat. He saw lives being transformed as people came to Jesus. He saw people come to Jesus. He saw not only physical change, but he saw internal change taking place in the lives of people. He saw people coming to Jesus. He actually even went out and ministered for Jesus, ministered in the name of Jesus. He was one of those that was sent out at various times. He did all of these things, but did not have a real relationship with Jesus. You see, Judas's life reminds us that you can be connected with Jesus, but not be connected to Jesus. 
Oh, he was, he was very connected with Jesus. He was, he was part of the crowd. He was part of the, the, the inner circle of 12. He was, he was there. He had knowledge. He had opportunity. But he did not have a real life-transforming, eternity-altering relationship. Said another way, you can know about Jesus. And he knew a lot about Jesus, including where he would be on that night he would betray him. But knowing a lot about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And this is not just a Matthew gospel thing. This is not even just a, a, a Judas thing. This is, a, this is an ongoing thing as humanity confronts and decides and relates to Jesus Christ. John, another one of those core 12 disciples, sometimes referred to as the beloved disciple, and his first letter that we have in the Scripture says, speaking of some folks, says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There were folks that were connected to the fellowship of the church, folks that were connected to the things of God, but there was not a persevering, there was not a sustaining. Eventually they went out from them, and it became plain that while they were part of the group, they were not genuinely connected to Christ. Perhaps it is that very real understanding that prompted Paul to write to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, he's writing to people that are connected to a church. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Judas's life screams so many things, but the thing that it perhaps screams and asks us the loudest is, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I a follower or just a faker? Is, is my relationship with Jesus Christ real? And as you think about that, and every time I, I, I teach on this subject, I always have a little, a little fear and trembling. And I'll just tell you, because my purpose is not to sow seeds of doubt in the lives of those who are genuinely connected to Jesus Christ. I have no desire to do that at all. But at the same time, if God could use these moments this morning to, to rattle someone's cage, to get their attention, to, to speak to their heart about the, the, the lack of a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then, then, then that would be time well spent this morning. So as we think about this, the, this question of am I a follower or a faker, and there are times maybe all of us wonder about that, and as we've taught on that through the years, well, one of the easiest ways that we've tried to teach on that is one of the easiest ways to kind of nail that down or begin to discern that is to look at my present posture, if you will. And I'm not talking about physically if you're standing straight here, okay? I'm talking about the posture of your heart and life. And the expression goes like this. My present posture is more important than my past memory. 
My present posture is more important than my past memory. You say, Jeff, what in the heck do you mean by that? What I mean is there are a lot of folks who are placing their hope, their faith, their trust, their understanding of their relationship with God on a past memory. Somewhere in the past, I walked the aisle. Somewhere in the past, I prayed a prayer. Somewhere in the past, I signed a card. Somewhere in the past, I was confirmed. Somewhere in the past, I was baptized. Somewhere in the past, I became a member of a church. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. I'm just saying those things in and of themselves are not sufficient. The question is not so much about the clarity of my past memory. The question is, what is the present posture of my life? Am I now standing in a continual posture of repentance and faith where I am continually turning from lesser things, continually turning from self-rule, continually turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not just to be the forgiver of my life, but the leader of my life, the Lord of my life, the first love, the highest priority of my life? If that is the the posture of my life right now, I have reason to believe that I'm in a right relationship with God. Back up to the verse there that we just read from John from John's letter. One of the other marks is perseverance. Is there a persevering in the faith? Because John said there were some, they they were apart, they were hanging out, they were part of the group, but they have gone away. They are no longer with us. They have gone out from us. One of the marks of authentic faith is that it perseveres, that it continues on. Someone said that faith that falters before the finish was faulty from the first, right? Faith that falters before the finish was faulty from the first. That that genuine faith perseveres. Doesn't mean we don't have ups and downs. Doesn't mean sometimes it's not three steps forward and two steps back. But there is a persevering. That's why, that's why there's an alarm bell when someone begins to withdraw from the fellowship of a church. Because that, that may very well be. And listen, I know we all get beat up. We all get dinged. We all get, get scarred. We all have tough things happen. And there are some days I don't want to show up, okay? Let's just be real, all right? I, I mean, we all, we all have those experiences along the way, right? But when Christ has genuinely transformed your life, it keeps showing up. And if you continue to follow John's letter, you'd find some of those distinguishing marks, a love for God and a love for others. So I had, as I look at my present posture, am I continually responding in repentance and faith toward God? Now, do I have a growing love toward God? Do I have a growing love toward others? Is there, is there a persevering in this faith? See, one of my fears is under the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or that statement, and we absolutely believe that's scripturally true, some have twisted that to the point in saying, once baptized, once confirmed, once walking an aisle, I'm always right with God. That's not true. So I have to come and examine myself. What is my present posture? Is there a love for God and a love for others? Is there a a, a persevering 
with God and with the body of Christ. Those are marks of those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, hear, hear my heart this morning. I, I, I'm not trying to stir up trouble. I, I'm not trying to, to sow seeds of doubt. But at the same time, we've been praying very specifically this morning, even specifically out of the One Cry Conference, that there would be nobody that would walk out of this room this morning without a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And our hope and our prayer and my pleading with you is don't walk out of this room today without talking to someone. If there's any question, any uncertainty, before you leave this room, don't settle for a a maybe. Don't settle for a fake. But we want you to experience a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's marked by repentance and faith. Don't leave this room without a real relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a connect room and a team that's going to be available at the end of our service to pray with you, to talk with you, to answer questions that you may have. Don't leave this room without talking to them today. The first lesson from Judas's life is that you can fake a relationship with Christ. The next two lessons are tied to that but distinct. You can break the heart of Christ. You can break the heart of Christ. Not only can you have this fake relationship, but, but, but you have this capacity to, to, to break the heart of Christ. Let's, let's go to, to John's Gospel, the 13th chapter, talking about uh, so, some of these same events that we've just seen here in Matthew's Gospel. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That's the same word that's used just a couple chapters earlier in John. John chapter 11 is talking about Lazarus and how Christ's heart was broken. He was, he was weeping there at the death of Lazarus, weeping over what sin had done. He was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. In this moment, they would, would lead from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually the, the arrest and the, the mockery of trials and the beatings and the crucifixion. Jesus was carrying this incredible burden, the burden of, of the sin of humanity that, that he, would, he would pay for on the cross. This was a burden. But what was breaking his heart in that moment, what was troubling his spirit in that moment was the presence of the betrayer one whom he loved, one whom he had, that had been with him, had enveloped in that inner circle of 12 for all these months and years, and who would betray him. We have the capacity to break the heart of Christ. The 41st Psalm pointing to the betrayal of Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, and others. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
one of the misunderstandings that we need to clarify. We need to understand that uh, our sin and rebellion is not just about right or wrong, although it is that. It's not just about breaking a rule. It is at its core breaking the heart of Christ. That, that, I, that I am not only just breaking a rule, and sometimes we get into that mentality that God has these rules, and I, well, I don't always keep them, and so I occasionally get a, a slap on the hand there because I broke a rule. You didn't just break a rule. You rebelled against God's love. You rebelled against God's rightful reign. You spit in the face of the one who died on your behalf. The one who loves you more than anybody will ever love you. Every time I choose my way instead of God's, it's a betrayal. A betrayal of his right to reign. A betrayal of his love toward me. You say, Jeff, man, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's a little strong there, buddy. It is. But think about it. The church of Jesus Christ is called the bride of Christ. Our greatest love, our greatest affection, our greatest loyalty is to be toward Jesus Christ. When I choose my way instead of his way, I am choosing to love someone or something else more than I am choosing to love him. I'm not just breaking a rule. I'm betraying a love. I'm breaking his Judas reminds us of the great risk, in some sense, that God took when he extends love to us. Because that love can be rejected, which is the third lesson. We can resist or even reject the love of Christ. Not only can we break his heart, but we can resist his love. Back to John's gospel. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He, he extended this incredible love day after day, week after week, and yet it continued to be resisted and ultimately rejected. John 13 again. One of his disciples, whom, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple leaned back against Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, here's the picture. There, even in these last moments, even he knows he's getting ready to betray him. And Jesus is close enough to Judas to dip a morsel of bread and give it to him. There's this invitation even at that point. And yet Judas still resisted. John's gospel opens up with the 
words that would inevitably prove to be true. He, being Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This ultimate gift of God's love, this ultimate expression of God's love, came to his very own people, but his own people didn't receive it. They resisted it. Now, some people's push back at this point. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jeff, wait a minute, wait a minute. Judas really felt bad. I mean, uh, he may have resisted for a while, and yeah, he did these bad things, but boy, in the end, he really felt bad, right? He, he returned that money. He, he, he was incredibly brokenhearted. This is the last thing I want us to learn from Judas this morning, and it is simply this. There's a huge, huge difference between being remorseful and being repentant. There's a huge difference between being remorseful and being repentant. Do I think he was remorseful? Absolutely. As he understood what he had unleashed, understood, started to see some of the consequences of his actions, absolutely he was remorseful. He threw that money. He didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. He eventually in his remorse goes out and takes his own life. He was remorseful as remorseful could be, but there's a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. Now, there's sometimes a strange psychology sometimes in some of us that go to church on a regular basis. And let me tell you how I hear that, and you can process it. But sometimes folks come up after a message, and particularly if maybe if it's a challenging one or a sobering one like this message, and, and they'll say something like, Whew! Boy, you, you are, man, you are really stepping on my toes today. And, and there, there, there are some folks, it's almost like it was a good service if I walk out feeling bad, right? If I feel guilty, it was a good service. Boy, God was speaking today, I, I feel guilty, Right? And we, it's almost like, you know, I don't know what the psychology of that is, but it's like we almost feel good about feeling bad or something, right? Can, can I just help you here? Jesus Christ did not die so that you can feel bad and feel good about it. Jesus Christ did not die for you to have sore toes. He died so that those toes would turn around and walk in a different direction. He died so that you would understand the the horror of your sin and compelled by his love, overwhelmed by his holiness, that soreness, that guilt would impel you not just to sit there and feel remorseful and feel somewhat good about feeling bad, but that you would turn that you would turn and place your faith and trust not in your ability but in him that you would turn from running your own life you would turn from selfishness you would turn from self-rule and self-reign and you would turn you would turn in faith you would turn in trust you would turn in full surrender full trust full yieldedness to the lordship of Jesus Christ that's what Jesus Christ came to do to call you to repentance and to enable you and empower you to walk in a lifestyle of repentance and surrender to him don't you dare insult the love and the gift of jesus christ by settling for remorse because he called you to more than that 
He didn't call you just to go about feeling remorseful. He called you to a life-altering, eternity-transforming repentance. You can weep at the altar with the biggest tears that you've ever produced from your eyes in your life. But if you don't get up from the altar and walk in a different direction, you have not been repentant. You have been merely remorseful. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ provided the way for you not just to feel bad, not just to feel remorseful, but to be transformed, to experience genuine repentance. Repentance is a sobering word, but I wish we could get to the point where we understand it to be the most joyous invitation in the world. I'm going to turn from lesser things. I'm going to turn from things that promise but don't deliver. I'm going to turn from those things, and I'm going to turn to the one who loves me. I'm going to turn to the one who always knows what is best. I'm going to turn to the one who will never let me down and never betray me. I'm going to turn to the one who offers me forgiveness, life, and hope now and forever. That's what repentance is. Why would I settle for being remorseful? when he invites me to repentance and he invites me to life. So as we think about the life of Judas, we come face to face with the reality that you can hang around the things of God but not have a real relationship with God. That you can continue to make choices that not only break rules but break his heart. Or you can choose to no longer resist his love, but to receive his love, not just by being remorseful, but by walking in spirit-empowered repentance. And so that's the invitation today. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for remorse. Only settle for a genuine, eternity, life-altering transformational relationship with Jesus Christ made possible as you respond to his love you respond to his the cross with repentance and faith let's bow our heads together as we pray please father I'm just just gonna ask you to would you just graciously speak to us again today in the quietness of these moments, would you, would you graciously call us again? Call us to recognize the reality of our relationship with you. Father, call us to, to a, a, a truth about our present posture towards you. And Father, I just ask right now, Lord, would you, would you in grace and mercy, Lord, help us not just to settle for being religious. Oh, Father, help us not just to, to be remorseful. Father, would you call us to a thorough, complete, life-altering repentance? And Father, I, I just pray today. Father, I pray for some that may be in this room that know about you but don't really know you. Father, I pray that before they leave this room, 
they will come to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That today would be the day of genuine salvation, genuine transformation. Father, I pray for those who know your name in this room. If those areas in our life where we have tried to reclaim the, the throne, or honestly, we've never really released it. We've trusted in ourselves. We've trusted in the world's way more than we've trusted in you, Father. I, I pray today that, that, Lord, we wouldn't just settle for having our toes stepped on. Lord, I pray today that we wouldn't just settle for being remorseful, Father, but today we would turn anew and afresh to you and experience the life, the hope, the power the love that comes through you. And as you just continue to sit before the Lord in these last few moments, for some of you this morning, this is a defining moment. As God is stirring in you. And I'm just going to ask you to take just a few moments as you sit before him and Look at your note-taking guide. There's some questions there that talk about making it personal. And you can see those. But as you're looking over those, I'm just going to ask for some of you here right now, your next spiritual step is going to be facilitated by some physical steps. We have a connect room in the very back of our worship space. There's a banner on the wall over your right shoulder. It says connect. There's a team of folks that are praying for you right now. And they're there to serve you. Maybe you, you just have some questions. You say, I, I'm not sure I fully understand what Jeff was sharing today. They'd be glad to unpack that further. Maybe today you just say, would you tell me? Would you help me to understand how I, how I can turn from self and sin and turn to Jesus? They can help you with that today. They're there to guide you. They're praying for you to come right now. Maybe your next step includes baptism and includes membership in this church. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you about something. And that's what that space is for. That's what that team is for. And even as we're in this attitude of prayer, I'm just going to invite you. If you need to slip out of your seat, scoot by some folks, they'll be glad to let you by. That team is there right now. They're going to be there through the remainder of our service. They'll be there right after our service. We just encourage you to make your way there. For some of you that are still here right now in the seats, it may be that God is being very specific with you about some areas where he's calling you to turn and trust him. The enemy will accuse you in generalities. The Father will be very specific in points of repentance. Where is he calling you to turn? Where is he calling you to surrender and instead of resist? What would genuine repentance look like in that area of your life? Father, as we just continue to, to respond to you, our, our responding to you is not going to end with a service. It's going to continue every moment of our lives. Father, I just ask now again, would you call us to you? Would you call us to life? Father, I pray. I pray for that one that is, 
yet to make their way to the connect room that Lord before they walk out of this room they will walk there today as you just continue in that attitude of worship I want to invite you to stand right now if you would